Off the Ball. Find us on Twitter at Off the Ball. News Talk 106 to 108. Joining me is uh, Chief uh, Chief Sports Writer for the Irish Daily Star, Karen Cunningham. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. And Michael Scully, Chief Sports Writer for the Irish Daily Mirror. Your paper debut, I believe, is it? Yes, it is, Neil. I'm delighted to be here. Long time listener, I imagine. Yes, yes. Do I have to say that? Yes. Yeah, you yeah. do. A um, couple of days to Christmas. Uh, I know the two of you have kids at home. How did you wangle this two days before Christmas, getting out of the house for a few hours? Ah, so it's compulsory. You have to do it. You have to work. You have to, you have to when you're summoned, you have to answer the call. So. Well, I have, I have a couple of Toy Master bags outside there in the studio, <laughs> so I've been doing a bit of double, double jobbing. Up morning yeah uh, plenty to get through anyway this afternoon uh, we will just start with the headlines first of all on the back page of the Sun Independent a whole new ball game five star United rediscover spark that's after United's 5-1 win against Cardiff City last night Anthony Martial celebrating his goal alongside Jesse Lingard uh, just tons of reaction to the whole Manchester United situation from Jose Mourinho to, to Paul Pogba to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, to even Mike Phelan, Mauricio Pochettino. Boom and bust is the headline on the back of the Sunday Times. Man United hit five against Cardiff, but Man City trailed Liverpool by four points after shock home defeat. That was after City's uh, remarkable 3-2 defeat against Crystal Palace yesterday. And also, a sidebar here, Mourinho had no idea Woodward was going to sack him. Jose Mourinho thought he was going to discuss Manchester United's transfer strategy when Ed Woodward uh, used their scheduled Tuesday meeting to sack the Old Trafford manager. Uh, I would love to have seen the face on Jose Mourinho when he walks in and is unexpectedly told, uh, there's the door. Yeah, because he went, uh, apparently travelled from, from Anfield to London. Like He goes back to his family in London as much as possible, but he was, he was in his office at Carrington for 9am the next day. So that makes, and he gets a train, so he must have got a really early train. He turned up on shave and everything. And apparently after the meeting with Woodward, he'd... He composed himself enough to shave and because he knew all of cameras and yeah. photographers, everything would be there. So, uh, elsewhere, uh, there's a couple of uh, sports pages this afternoon on the uh, Sunday Business Post. They have a big year in sport review, big scalps, big prizes, and big name exits. That's uh, by Barry J. White, and it's a great picture of Jacob Stockdale going over for his try against the All Blacks last month. Back page of the Irish Sun on Sunday. Rue Joyce uh, Salcher says Waza's text sparked rout. Ollie Gunnar Salcher. Uh, got a couple of text messages from Wayne Rooney last night before their, his first game for United. Uh, just put a few tips on how to handle some of the players that Rooney remembered from his time at the club. On the back of the Sunday World, Klopp like X, or it's beginning to look a Klopp like Xmas. Liverpool's four points clear as Pep's turkeys get stuffed. Um, that is after uh, Liverpool went uh, four clear on Friday night with their 2 0 win against, uh, against Wolves. And Man City followed it up yesterday with that. Uh, Pretty shock defeat against Crystal Palace. Back page of the uh, Star on Sunday. Ollie not sorry. Solskjaer off to a flyer and says ex-United bosses had their chance. He uh, said yesterday afternoon after that game that he he didn't really feel sorry for any of the managers who had been sacked uh, because it just pretty much is the business these days. Uh, on the back of the Irish Daily Mail. Thanks, Jose. Pogba salutes axed boss for trophies and helping me to improve. Uh, Paul Pogba is... Uh, been gracious enough uh, in the wake of Jose Mourinho's exit, saying that he's helped him a lot over the last couple of years, bringing him back gracious. to the club. He wasn't gracious on, after a few hours after he uh, exited. For a few minutes. For a few, after minutes, a few minutes. minutes. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, on the Irish Day, on the Sunday Mirror, happy holidays. Rooney's message helps new boss inspire Reds. Ander Herrera there celebrating his goal in the opening half of that game, putting United 
2-0 uh, up at the time, but there's no money for the January sales, apparently, says uh, Simon Mullock. Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer isn't going to have anything to spend yeah, in January. That's an interesting one, because it's been it had been reported elsewhere. Uh, they would have million 50 pounds, million sterling yeah. Yeah, to, to spend, so it's an interesting one to say that. But it might be no harm to say, you know, you've spent serious money on this squad in the last five years. Yeah. You can try coaching them to improve. And well, also as well, if they're going to have a new coach coming in, well, probably yeah, a new let, coach let coming in decisions. in the summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's yeah. the point in signing someone who in six months' time could be surplus to requirements? Yeah. And then finally, back page of the Sunday People. It's a jolly Ollie Day game of loans. No Xmas cheer for Ollie's, he's told. Just loan signings for you. So as we spoke about there just a moment ago as well, there's not going to be any money for Solskjaer to have in the January transfer window. But the uh, people are saying anyway, he might be able to get a couple of temporary deals, just like his own his own deal with United. I mean, um, that, that surely makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You, you, yeah, I like think it does. If, if you're talking about five months in the job, you know, you've got to leave it to the next man. Just as long as he doesn't sign a lot of players from Malde for a few months yeah. or anything like that. Well, I, I, know, I know these guys. You know? Yeah. But don't you think, like they have, they have 60 scouts in their operation. Mm -hmm. So clearly been, they're clearly tracking players all the time. And at the same time, I can see why you'd say wait till the next manager, but they're 11 points off. Uh, well, after yesterday, actually, I need to check the league table, but they were very much in touch with top four, if they got no, especially the fixture list is quite kind to them. They're also in the last 16 to get the Champions League against PSG, and PSG can be very flaky. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they should be giving it up on this season. Like I've seen stuff that you know, Solskjaer just tied them over, but uh, you know, United need more ambition than that. Like the, the, that, uh, particularly with the Pochettino thing, I think that could unsettle Tottenham a bit. Yeah. And At the moment, no, they're only yeah. eight points off the top four after, a good yeah, after yeah, Chelsea lost yeah. yesterday. And, and, yeah, and you mm. can't trust Arsenal. Either, and, you, and you're not sure where Chelsea are. We thought we could trust them there for a, for a little while. Yeah, so I think like the last a, week or two has shown us. That's why I think uh, United th should be going all out for the top four, especially the, the the manager coming in wants Champions League football. You know, he doesn't want to be playing Europa League next year. So uh, if it needs a January, a big January sign, then they go for it. And they can like you always get this thing thrown out there. There's no value in January. Liverpool got Van Dijk in January. No, they've got Sturridge, Coutinho and Suarez in January. That's mm -hmm. just one club. No, the, in the past, United got Vidic and Evra in January, two of their best defenders last 15 years. And I think a lot of, a lot of people balked last January, or it was last end of December, really, actually, when the news broke. It was, what, 70, 75 million Liverpool were signing Van Dijk for. Yeah. That now looks like an absolute it's snip. A in the century, yeah. And, uh, you know, because the, 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 the Van Dijk, signing is is very interesting because of the way it shows the way Liverpool operate that they track 30 centre halves and the way they operate now with the, the guy who does the data in Boston with the Fenway group Michael Edwards the sporting director and club and they don't send like the old-fashioned way you send your scout and then the manager he recommends somebody and the manager goes and have a look at them and they might look at them a couple of times they track them for 15 to 20 games because I think that's the only way you have an idea of a, a player's real quality mm -hmm. and its consistency so the, the the Van Dyke thing was like a lot of Liverpool fans were were wondering why there wasn't a Plan B when Southampton refused to sell him in the summer of 2017. Plan, the Plan B was buy him. Yeah, in six the Plan months. Said, was wait six months because, or, or a year if it needs to be because they went through everything and said by a mile this is the outstanding candidate. Mm -hmm. So when they sold Coutinho, they knew they were going to get Van Dyke, and I think I'm not so sure about the goalkeeper thing, but like that did give them the funds for mm -hmm. Allison more or less. But, um, you know, there was always a chance that would go big in a goalkeeper. But I think he was going to give Carriers one last chance because Carriers was the goalkeeper he wanted. He'd scouted him and he knew him in Germany. But, uh, you know, it, it does show up this thing, you know, um, 
uh, that you, you should go after the player you really want. Mm -hmm. Not make do. Like even if it says it means waiting a year. Like Liverpool, for example, the Kaitis transfer as well. Did they had to wait a year? They agreed the deal, and the fee was was Leipzig, but they still waited a year before they could actually join the club because they scouted him so intensively. They figured it was the guy he needed. So I think United, from what have to get up to speed. That's the way top clubs are operating now. And you read stuff here. Mourinho was only manager in the Premier League to get rid of GPS units. Like he seemed to be reacting against a lot of sports science and a lot of modern methods. You know? I hadn't even realised that actually, and it was even funny. We were just talking earlier on. It was the the first time this yesterday was the first time this season United outran their opposition yeah. in a match. They're the only club in the Premier League who, who aren't operating the GPS system. Isn't that right? Yeah, they they, they did have. Yeah, he got rid of it a couple of weeks ago. Apparently, yeah, he yeah. didn't believe in it. So. Might be selling a job if you do believe it. Yeah, that's uh, that's incredible. But, but there it, are what what is interesting is as well that if Solskjaer doesn't have any money to spend, you know, a couple of weeks ago Roy Keane was on TV saying there aren't the players aren't there. These are mediocre mediocre players. So mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see can he do can he turn them around? I think the quality's there. Yeah, it's certainly there. I think to you know it might be there to to win the Premier League title, but it's certainly yeah. there to be one yeah. of the. One of the top four or five teams. I know, and I, I, I actually, I guess my back up when you hear this stuff, the quality isn't there, or you know, we need new players all yeah. the time. Like the, the managers, the reason managers and coaches spend years and years getting A license and pro license and getting their experience is because they're getting coaching expertise to improve players. And you look at some of the players at Liverpool, the way they've improved. You look at how Fernandinho, for example, or Raheem Sterling have improved under Guardiola. You read, there was a great piece in, uh, is it called the Players' Tribune that Harry Kane was involved in? Or oh, Harry? yeah. Yeah, the, he, he wrote about Pochettino, about the work he's done with him. And like, Harry Kane was out and alone in Millwall. Like, it was, cutting, it was up in the air whether he'd have any future at Tottenham, but he did really intensive work with him. Like, that's, uh, like, virtually all the players in that Manchester United squad are international players. You know, they're, they're, they were coveted by a lot of different clubs. Like, there's a lot more in them. Like, I saw, it might be David Walsh there that made a reference to it's taken five years to turn things around for United. Soon, I think Sooness said it. Yes, yeah. yeah, Sooness says it here. Yeah, it's I actually at the nice very bottom. As I said at the start, United need five years at least yeah. to fix the mess they've managed but to get into. Look where Liverpool were a few years ago. Liverpool were no Two years ago. Yeah. So you can turn things around very, very quickly. I think in the, in the Sunday Times as well, um, Jonathan Norcroft was saying that one of the tipping points was that Anthony Marshall was, th was thinking that this was, was saying that this is going to be his last contract at the club and you know, the, the owners, Edward Ward and the owners were, were going, no, this is, we can't have this, you know, this is going to be a brain drain to our top players. So, uh, you know, you can, you can see why they acted. I, I, I'm not surprised. I don't know how Jose is surprised if he's thinking that they're going to hold on until United are out of Europe. Yeah, and I quite like the way, kind of just the layout of the way the Sunday Times have done the, it's a kind of a two-page spread almost on us, mm. on the left-hand side, on the, the left page of Jonathan Orcroft. And yeah. essentially he's talking about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and how he's, you know, he's the nice guy come in, he's putting the, the gentle hand on the shoulder, telling them they're all yeah. great players. And then on the flip side, you've Graeme Souness yeah. do, doing his thing of being, you know what, the, the players need to have a look at themselves. They don't have the players, you know, they need, they need so much time to get it right. He still says Mourinho should have gone at that stage, but yeah. it, I, I just liked the, 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 the layout the contrast, on it. The contrast, yeah, yeah. No, and they're two good pieces, and they're two of the better pieces mm. on the whole affair. And I, I find it interesting as well, because a lot of 
there's always this to and fro between Liverpool and United fans on social media and sniping at each other. But one of the things you, you see United fans do a lot on social media is throw back the fact that Klopp hasn't won any trophies at Liverpool. Yeah. He's just great at hugs and everything and Mourinho's win percentage. But you read then what Solskjaer has to say and he sounds very like Klopp. Mm -hmm. Like it's the kind of stuff, you know, that it's on about we're the best club in the world, the best people in the world. He's mentioning the coaches, cleaning lady, sh chef. I'm not here for me, I'm here for the team and the club. You know, it's all about inclusivity and reconnecting with everybody. And um, it says he, earlier in the piece, Solskjaer's first job is about a smile back in the face of a brooding club. And if that's all he achieved in his five months, it would be a valuable sojourn. And I think you can't underestimate that. Like Liverpool have won one trophy in 12 years. And that was a League Cup on penalties against Cardiff City. It absolutely meant nothing. Like, getting to the Champions League final is way ahead of that. Yeah. Like, people get too obsessed with trophies. Like, th th these days, the, particularly the League Cup and the FA Cup, to a fair extent, are way down the pecking order. And you don't, you know, you can't just... Uh, uh, Evaluate what Klopp has done for Liverpool in terms yeah, of silverware. I, there was, silver I can't so remember. Far, you know? I can't remember who tweeted it during the week. There was a. It was a very interesting. Tweet. It was just kind of along the lines. It was listing off all the the things that Mauricio Pochettino has done over yeah. the last couple of years, and it says, having said all that, until he wins the League Cup. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's nothing really, is he? Like, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, no, because this has been brought up by Pochettino. He's won nothing to title, but you look at where he started. Like, yeah. God, he. he well, he's uh, taken them from fifth and sixth to third, but, yeah. it's, but it's a culture change. It's, culture it's the same with Klopp. Yeah, and if you look at it in terms of spending, they shouldn't be near where they are. But the, the other thing is, he's made people happy that follow the clubs, mm -hmm. and so has Klopp. Like, mm. Mourinho won trophies with United, but their fans were miserable. And, and, the, and the players were miserable. Yeah, the fans and the players were miserable. They didn't enjoy the football. So even though they had a couple of trophies, Liverpool fans and Tottenham have enjoyed the last couple of years. They've enjoyed the ride. And sometimes you have to enjoy the ride. Like, it's not always the team that wins that uh, is transformative. Like the Netherlands team in 1974-78 didn't win the World Cup, but mm -hmm. they're far, far more fondly remembered than the West Germany and Argentina team to beat them in the finals. Mm -hmm. The most fondly remembered team in 1982 World Cup is Brazil, who went out in the second phase. It's not Italy who won the competition. You know, sometimes it's the, the well, it, you know, it's about more. The, you know, the joy matters too. This is the and this is the problem when United went for Mourinho. You know, this is a job Mourinho wanted for a very long time. Mm -hmm. United kind of held off and held off. Bobby Charlton, there's a, a quote in, in one of the papers there, back in 2012, saying he's not a coach for us. I think it was after he stuck his finger in Tito's eye in, yeah. in, in, the, in the, the derby. And, um, you know, I think he's, he's proved over time that he is not a Manchester United manager. You know, it, it's been a dark cloud over Old Trafford for a long time. Um, mm. And yet you contrast that with, with Anfield and Klopp and... and um, and even you can see Solskjaer in the space of a week, almost a few days, he's kind of transformed things. But he, he's also transformed his own image. He, he came in there, a lot of people were questioning. I know they only beat Cardiff, but um, he, he hasn't put a foot wrong. His, his, mm -hmm. uh, his pre-match press conferences, you know, people kind of flicked the switch. Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of optimism there. So Marcus Rashford, after the match yesterday, the first thing he mentioned was the positivity that was present. Yeah, and as, I think as, as Graham Suna says here, um, United have looked for the antidote to the toxic relationship between Mourinho and his players, so they've gone for the polar opposites. They've replaced Mr. Confrontational with Mr. Nice Guy. That would be the first task for Solskjaer getting the players back on side because Mourinho wasn't getting the most yeah, from the squad. And I, I think you saw, saw the reaction yesterday that there's been a craving for just letting from the fans and, and the media yeah, for just to watch. 
United looked like they're enjoying football again. And so a fair bit of the coverage because that is a bit over the top because you go back to when Moyes was pushed out the door and Giggs came in as interim or as caretaker manager and they beat Norwich City 4-0 in their first game and there was mm -hmm. kind of similar stuff around that. And Everyone then, gets the bounce. Yeah, and then quickly became apparent that Giggs mightn't have a notion, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how he pads out with Wes. But, uh, so uh, the, the, it was, there was always a chance of this bounce because the fixture list is quite kind. They've, mm. They're probably the kindest Christmas yeah. programme of any, of any yeah. big, of the big clubs. So they could be going into... Um, like they play Liverpool again in Fairby at Old Trafford. They could be coming into the, that game in a decent position, you know. So that would be an interesting game then. You know. My thoughts are with Molda here, like you know, the statement of trust. <laughs> their, their manager has been taken away. Um, it's, a it's a little bit like the, the Irish situation. What if he is spectacularly good? Yeah. And United go, hang on a second. Now I know it's a bit of a long shot, but imagine. Uh, hang on here. We want this guy. It's a bit like the. Mick McCarthy goes and wins the Euros. <laughs> Hang on a second, what do we do now? We've got our, our Stephen Kenny Mick McCarthy situation. Yeah, it is it is gonna be interesting just just to see if he does very well. Mm. Yeah, it will. You know, you would um there, there aren't many Cardiff fans in Ireland, but you know, just from looking at the reaction to a couple of them, they were they weren't very impressed with McCardiff, so no. maybe it's uh Although I suppose at Cardiff he probably had to do a lot more than just the gentle hand on the shoulder and yeah, tell them they're all great. Yeah. But like, see, a lot of it does come back to the players. If the players suddenly decide to stop sulking and earn their money and show a bit of tactical discipline, like say Pogba's example, uh, prime example, who just didn't seem to follow instructions under Mourinho. Like he just seemed to be playing his own game in his own head and his own world. And, um, I find the Sooners stuff interesting because when you watch Sooners, he's a brilliant pundit, but it's clear that players annoy him. I think yeah. it can, <laughs> or maybe it's just people annoy him. I'm not sure. Maybe what he's are the two? Studio yeah, but he, he's a few references here, and he kind of touches on that. Like, said, Mourinho had lost patience with the players, not just at United, but at Real Madrid and Chelsea as well. He stopped being a man manager, which was good in his early years. He's felt he's big enough to go down a road that no longer works with players' confrontation. I think he's re referencing his own career there that he was quite confrontational. But he said, it's further proof players are all powerful now. When I'm asked if I go back to management, that's the reason I wouldn't last five minutes. The tail wags the dog now. The manager's the boss in name only. Which, uh, but he, it's you know, he, doesn't, he doesn't mention, like he, he, he reckons Pochettino, this might be the job for him. He mentions Zidane, but it's not the job for him. He doesn't actually point towards an actual... Yeah, to, to who actually yeah. is the... Who could be who the manager? But, there's, but there. there's no, there's nobody you can pick, and you'll say they'll definitely do it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nobody out there because it's a job with different pressures to mm. virtually every other job. Because <coughs> Pochettino at Tottenham, he could stay there for the next five seasons, not win a trophy. If he gets into the Champions League every year, he'd be regarded as a huge success. If he goes to United for five years, he has to be in the Champions League every year. He's expected to win the league at least once, and he's expected to contest for the Premier League. You know, so the, I the think pressure. he has the ambition to go for it, do you? Huh? I think he has the ambition Pochettino. to go for it. Pochettino? Yeah. Oh, I'm convinced. Yeah, from, even from the way he talked the other day, he wants yeah. it. Yeah. Even just to shift on to Pochettino, uh, one thing you came in talking about today, which you enjoyed as well, is, oh, yeah, as yeah. it's called, the boy who would be king. Uh, just a very interesting profile of Pochettino in the Mail on Sunday by Rob Draper, who actually went all the way over to Rosario and Buenos Aires to, yeah. to do this. And it just talks about, you know, Coming through, coming from the town of, of Murphy, yeah. Rosario as well, which is quite interesting. Um, and you know, his 
playing career from Newell's Old Boys, Argentina, being remembered as the man who tripped up Michael Owen in 2002. Yeah, no, because it was great that they backed Rob Draper or, or sent him over to go to, you know, because it was a great idea to go to Argentina and dig out the you know, story to the background. Because will, you, will you be cutting this one out and bringing <laughs> it into the office on a Monday morning? Yeah. Well, look, yeah, you know, this is this is what you can get if you if, if you send <laughs> yeah. people away. But it just it is rare these days because obviously budgets are tighter in all sorts of media yeah. outlets. And it does it is good that somebody's decided this is worth it. Even you know it's a spread among many other spreads, but they think you know this is the big story and. Um, I think about the, the, one thing, the, the Murphy, where he's from, it's named after an Irish immigrant, John James Murphy. And I was curious what the population was, so I looked it up and it's 3,300. It's fascination that the amount of people who are very prominent in sports come from tiny places. Like you look at Joe Schmidt, mm -hmm. is from somewhere, I think it's around 2000, population 2,000. Ireland captain Rory Best is from Points Pass, which is about 1,500 people. I think literally the final line right now, Pochettino might be the world's most valuable farmer. Yeah, farmer. Like Seamus Coleman's from Killybegs, a couple of thousand people. Martin O'Neill's in Kilray, a couple of thousand people. Like, there's a lot of very prominent people that, uh, I don't know, does it give them a certain drive or hunger to prove yourself when you do come from, from such a, mm -hmm. a small place? But there's, there's interesting stuff in here, like Roberto Cincini, uh, People probably remember he played alongside Pochettino of the 2002 World Cup, but he has um, he, he mentions uh, here about um, just his character. And one of the things is that he says is Mauricio is very easy to talk to. He's transparent. He has good values. We call them Campechanos, good natured, down to earth. And if you saw that press conference the other day where the press officer. Was <laughs> yeah, was trying to stop the questions <laughs> yeah. about United. So and he's just sitting there smiling back. But he was so, yeah, he was saying, you're the star of this press conference. He just, he took it in a stride. Like yeah. some other people would look really uncomfortable in that position. Would nearly be summoning the press officer Yeah, but he was kind this. of enjoying this. Yes, look, I'll just get on with it. Like he didn't get it, yeah. let, let it get to him. So you'd imagine they had the little chat beforehand to say, we're, you know, we're shutting this yeah. down. You know, yeah. so, yeah, but he, he, you're right. He is that kind of a character. He, he seems very calm, relaxed. I remember when he came to Southampton first and being hugely impressed by his progress so quickly, uh, even though it took him a while to learn the language. And I remember at the time we were all thinking, what do I have to, what do, I have to do? Nigel Atkins is doing right. a brilliant job. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was huge, yeah. There was huge controversy over that. There was, yeah. yeah. Because oh, yeah, there, there's there interesting stuff and it, it, reference, it uh, refers back to what we were saying about um, Solskjaer and the, you know, talking to everybody at the training ground, you know, the, the woman in the canteen and the cleaners, etc. And Ricky Villa is... Um, talking about Pochettino, he says, Mauricio is the spirit of an amateur, by which I mean every day he says to the players, forget about money, play from your heart. I know everyone talks about winning trophies of your manager, but he improves every player he works with. For me, that's the main point of a manager. And that's what they need. And that goes to the club thing, the Guardiola thing again. Mm -hmm. That that's, you know, Mourinho's thing was, I win more of Premier League than all the other managers put together. Respect, 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 that kind of stuff. But he's on about improving players. That's his main. That's his big thing, and that's that's where winning trophies eventually comes from. It also references the influence of Bielsa. You know, um, uh, Bielsa, the Leeds United manager, who's had a massive influence on him, mm -hmm. uh, and on Guardiola, and that uh, um, just his style is very much based on on how he, he played for um, back in the day when Bielsa was his coach, which is an interesting one. Also trains players really hard. It, says, it works the bollocks off them, as a quote there. So. <laughs> There's a good one there when he yeah, followed, actually, he followed them to Espanyol, sorry. Mm. And um, he obviously, got, he said he got caught up in the trappings of fortune and fame. And uh, he, he wasn't playing at the same level he was playing in back home. And he was called aside Bielsa when through him. And uh, he, he said it left him in tears 
and he asked for a second chance and he gave it to him and, and his career progressed from then. Also, very good as well, it's, the piece starts off with, with uh, talk of the super scout who found him at yeah. the old, old boys. And Jorge uh, Griffa. Not knocking on his parents' doors, door at 2am, uh, wanting to have a look at this this uh, young 14-year-old that they had that they had heard about and uh, being allowed to look into his bedroom and saying, uh, what legs, a footballer's legs? And in the mean, Pochettino is still asleep. So they, they basically gave him a trial on, the, on the, the basis of seeing what legs he had, you know. It's interesting. But uh, yeah, great piece. Yeah, it's just really, it's just conclusive as well. And, you know, long fed up by Alex Ferguson. Now it seems, you know, it's executive chairman Edward Work, his courage of playing attacking, attractive football that fits an English model mm. and promoting youth as well, which is one thing that we've yeah. seen in Spurs. He, kind of, he just ticks so many boxes. And then yeah. you, you see uh, n numerous uh, pieces are, are re referencing Paul Mitchell at Le Leip Leipzig, mm -hmm. who could come in as, the, as United's director of football, they're saying, and uh, he's worked with Pochettino at Espanyol and Southampton. Yeah. So it sounds like the perfect fit between the two of them. Yeah, it's gonna just, I think it's just going to be very interesting to see over the next six months how the, how the speculation affects Spurs, because yeah. The last few years, I think they've always they've always been much better in the second half of the season, and they even kind of hint at it here. You were mentioning the how, how much he runs his players, you know, yeah, runs yeah. the bollocks off him. But Pochettino trains players all season at full intensity. Mm. He believes that though uh, that though there's an injury risk, it bears fruit after Christmas, which is borne uh, borne out by performances. Yeah, and yeah. it probably is something we have seen over the last yeah, few years. Definitely, yeah, definitely. There was a lot of talk about Klopp doing that, wasn't there? And there yeah. was a lot yeah. of Liverpool players breaking down, certainly at the start of his of his reign. Um, that seems to have cur been curtailed now, doesn't it? Yeah, and uh, it's an interesting one because how he would deal with somebody like Pogba, I'd be curious of, because there's a piece with mm -hmm. Pogba, um, it might be uh, might be in the mail as well, I can't remember. Yeah, it is, yeah, can yeah, anyone Pogba solve the Pogba puzzle? puzzle? Yeah. But what interests me is, uh, you know, it goes into a lot of, you know, like he's a bit flash and he's a bit of bling and, you know, how much he spends on his watches and all that kind of rubbish. It doesn't really matter. Like every a lot of players do this kind of stuff. But it also is teetotal. Mm -hmm. Like, so this, you know, this kind of bugs me when I hear the Roy Keane stuff. Like Roy Keane saying a lot of them are poor human beings or something. He said about the United fan, uh, players. And, you know, he's always having a go at modern players. But, like, Roy, when he was, like, he goes into it in his first autobiography. For many of his years as a professional footballer, uh, like, there's a great myth that when Alex Ferguson came in that he got rid of the drinking culture at Old Trafford. <laughs> yeah. Because a few, a few of the big drinkers left. But it was there for years and years afterwards. And, and Keane writes about that, like, coming out in the week, weeks, you know, just a couple of days before games or big games, often, you know, there was serious boozing sessions. And, you know... And he calling out people, Pogba or, and others for being unprofessional. How unprofessional is that? Mm -hmm. Like at Ipswich Town, in his second autobiography, Keane details, uh, you know, he'd get a, he would get a bad result, say, in the Tuesday game. And he wouldn't go to train until Saturday because he was, uh, oh, he, he, he wouldn't be seen again until he played again on Saturday because he was sulking. He didn't turn up at training. Like, how unprofessional <laughs> is that? So I look at this guy and he doesn't drink and he lives his life. You know, he, he prepares properly in many ways. But because he dances around the dressing room and does funny handshakes, he's vilified. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, sorry, just as a, as a humorous aside, there's a, a nice little piece by Tommy Conlon in the Sunday Indo where he talks about uh, Mark oh, Allen. Oh, Mark Allen. Mark I did Allen, see that, who yeah. went, basically went drinking yeah. for all of, all of last week. In between the sessions. And still won the Scottish Open. Sessions. Yeah, and, <laughs> and won the Scottish Open, having finished runner-up the, the, week, the week before to, to Ronnie O'Sullivan, pocketed 75 grand. And uh, went on the beer and yeah. won the next tournament. So, 
And I think maybe the, the one take up the one evening the he didn't the one evening he didn't actually go out on the beer with the following he had, morning. He had three he, or four. Yeah. He felt absolutely awful, he says, and the, yeah. the, adv- the advice was just go out, have a couple of settlers and uh, come yeah, back. Yeah, You'll yeah. feel much better for it tomorrow. But um, that's it for Manchester United. Uh, well, I was, can I just I yeah, say the, the, the greatest trick Man United have ever pulled is, uh, you know, Liverpool have gone four points clear to top. <laughs> We're we not haven't talking about it. We haven't mentioned them. losing. Well, sorry, Liverpool fans. We're actually going to be talking about Everton and Seamus Coleman after <laughs> the break. Off the ball. Find us on Twitter at Off The Ball. News Talk 106 to 108. Welcome back to the Sunday paper review here on Off The Ball this Sunday. Neil Tracy filling in for Joe Malloy this afternoon. Kieran Cunningham and Michael Scully alongside with me for uh, the rest of the paper review. There was one thing, Kieran, when you came in, the mm-hmm. first thing you mentioned to me was um, a pretty brilliant profile of Seamus Coleman uh, by David Snade in the Irish Daily Mail. Yeah, I think it's comfortably, comfortably the best piece in any of the Sunday papers today. And it stands out for a number of reasons. Like David um, did a, a similar piece to this a few months ago before Glenn Whelan's last game for Ireland, the friendly against Northern Ireland, where he talked to a lot of people who knew, who, who dealt, played with or know or have worked with or are friendly with Glenn over the years and to build up a portrait of him. And it's it's... You know, a profile can be dismissed very easily because mm-hmm. sometimes it's just seen as you're not able to get an interview and I just do a profile of somebody. But an in-depth profile has a lot going for it that it often tells you far, far more than, than the an actual would interview. Tell yeah. You, yeah. And this way, like this, I'd love to know when David first had the idea or first started to work on this because I would say he's been getting bits and pieces together for a long, long time for it. That he knew, mm-hmm. you know, obviously it's to tie in with the 10 years next month since uh, Seamus went from Sligo to Everton. So he's talked to 10 different people and you know the list is long. Like Bill Ellaby, who was the Everton player liaison officer, Phil Neville, Tim Howard, and Tim Howard's now at Colorado Rapids in the US, so we tracked him down there. Alan Stubbs, Kevin Sheedy, Brian Dorian, who's from Killybegs, St. Catherine's Club, Leon Osmond, David Myler, Ian Holloway, who managed Shamey when he was alone at Blackpool and Ronald Coleman who had him at Everton and who's now the Netherlands manager and he tracked him down for for stuff so it, there's just such a, so much detail in there and so much work and it's it's great to see that somebody has the time and put put that much effort into one piece and it, it builds up a picture and like there's a few little things in here about him um like David Ellaby, he, he, he was describing him as a second dad. He was a guy yeah. who first met him, you know, kind of <clears throat> dealt with him when he went to That's Everton. What he starts off with. Yeah. And he's, he, he just said uh, one of the things he wanted to live, Ellaby says about Shamey, he wanted to, the, he was with Rachel Cunningham, who's now married to Shamey, and they, there were two things they wanted. They wanted to live close to the training ground. And most players want, you know, they want a mansion in Cheshire, mm-hmm. and they don't really care, but they got their training ground. But like, that's how seriously he was taking the whole thing. And he wanted to be close to the airport so he could go home whenever he got a chance. And I know he's not from, like, he's only from uh, a couple of parishes away from me in Donegal. And Seamus goes home a hell of a lot. And, like, um, and I know what kind of character, like, it p- points out a few things. Like, Phil Neville and him have a particularly close relationship because uh, Seamus' brother Stevie is cerebral palsy and he represented Ireland at the Special Olympics. And uh, Neville's daughter, um, uh, Isabella, has a CP as well. So they kind of bonded over that, and they're still they're still very close. Yeah, and like that's I think that's what's so good about the profile, that in particular, and his friendship with Neville. Yeah, and how they would have bonded over it. That is something you know I would say most people. Yeah, definitely me anyway. Yeah, had, I know that. No yeah, of. definitely, and I know like there's a lot of um, you know charities or fundraisers of various sorts. 
at home for different things. And the amount of times you see that there's, you know, there might be an auction and there's a Seamus Coleman signed jersey or these contributed in some way. Sometimes it's public, sometimes it isn't. That mm -hmm. he helps out a hell of a lot. And uh, he's really down there as guy. Like I remember two years ago, there was um, my brother died from cancer quite young, and there was a, 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 a Gaelic football match two years ago uh, to mark the twentieth anniversary of his passing. And it was a couple of teams playing, but uh, no, Seamus's uncles would have played for a local GA club. Seamus and Old Car, and they were playing. And Seamus was in the pub afterwards, and like he just. He just mixes, like he's just an ordinary, he still comes across as a grounded fella. There's no errors and graces. He's, he's a very un-Premier League footballer, yeah. Premier League footballer. Yeah, like he's the most old school. Like, uh, I'm actually surprised he's wearing blue boots there. Because <laughs> yeah. I just expect he would be wearing black boots for some reason. Yeah. There's a couple of um, good recollections there from Brian Dorian, his friend. Yeah. Um, including the, the, the Friday the Friday Treat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he says uh, when, when he'd come home, he, we'd car share. He had this little Mazda 121 and Seamus would have his can of Coke, sausage sandwich with, with red sauce, God forgive me the smell of it, and a packet of tater crisps. He doesn't drink or anything like that. So every Friday without fail, he'd have the same treat. But when he came back from Everton, he wouldn't touch it. Yeah. He had evolved. And, uh, but uh, there's another good one, just when he was making his first team debut uh, away to Benfica in, in the Europa League to October 2009, it was a disaster. Everton lost 5-0 and Coleman played left back in a makeshift starting uh, 11, sorry, coming up against a promising young winger from, uh, from Argentina. Then Dorian says, Shamey told me how Angel de Maria did a drag back with one foot and took it away with the other. And by the time he knew what happened, he was 10 yards away. Dorian laughs. Yeah. That could have been the end of him, but of course he... Yeah, like I remember, much uh, bigger uh, things than that. Uh, Seamus is a first cousin of Desi Farrell, who would have, you know, won all Ireland, Dublin, family, the GPA, etc. And I remember talking to Desi over the years about, and he would come up in conversation like from when he was about nine or ten, oh. like in both soccer and Gaelic football, particularly Gaelic football, because uh, there was a lot of Gaelic football in this, in this, in you know, family connection to top class footballers, so. It always seemed like he was going to be somebody special. Like he would have been centre half back in Gaelic football. Like he'd have been a year or two ahead of Michael Murphy and the Donegal development squads. And he has talked before about how he'd love to go back, he, or not loved, he had an intention of going back to play GA for Kitty Beggs. And I wonder is the broken leg because of that? Yeah. Will that go against him? Because I think maybe he, his retirement age will be pushed back because he's, he might feel he's making up for lost time now. There's something. There's one thing that's not approached in this. Now he's getting quite a lot of flack from yeah. Everton fans lately, and I, I was wondering would that be dealt with. But uh, yeah, I was just going to say it does feel like there's uh, an interesting few months ahead of him. Yeah, you know, and I know, I know you guys have been debating a lot with different people on who who should play him or Matt Doherty for Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, you'd hope that Mick McCarthy would be able to accommodate both of them on that. On the right how, side. How, do, how does he accommodate both? He's got to try, hasn't he? <laughs> well, like, well, how well, do you leave out both of those well, guys? Well, when he started yeah. you know, out like, uh, at Everton, uh, he was played right, on the right wing. Mm. You know, even though he joined as a right back, he was he, mm. Moyes initially played him in the right wing, and I think he might have played in the right wing at Blackpool as well. So, mm. um, yeah, he made a huge impact. Yeah, like so, uh, you could see an argument for. Uh, Mick thinking that a combination of Doherty and Coleman on the right wing would give you both an attacking edge and defensive solidity because mm -hmm. both, both can defend and, and both, both are adept to go forward. forward well, yeah. yes, so. I remember just another side, I remember watching uh, Matt Doherty in the, uh, the Northern Ireland fiasco that night and the amount of times he would throw his arms up in the air asking for, for a pass 
He'd, he had the loads of space on the right hand right hand side and nobody would pass him the ball and I just sat there in the first half going, what a waste, <laughs> what a waste of talent. This guy is burning up the Premier League and he can't, nobody will pass him the ball. Yeah, yeah. There's a, they used it as a breakout quote here and what I found was interesting was Alan Stubbs and he was saying, uh, he says, did, did we ever think that Seamus would go on and do the things he's done? I would have to say that my answer would be no. Mm. And I think that's one thing that's actually cost him a little bit in that, uh, like Martin O'Neill often talked him up as being world class. He was, he's not world class. No, he's a, mm -hmm. he's a great player. No, he's not. A, he's got a great attitude and he's a good player. And he, he, he puts in some, he's put in some top class performances. But I think I always remember going back to when Moyes was there. Moyes mentioned that he was playing catch up because you have the kids, kids that come through academy structures, uh, you know, that were there from, you know, their early teens or something. They get a hell of a lot of coaching from top class coaches. And he says Seamus was a bit off because he, the level of coaching he was getting yeah. in Ireland wasn't at that <laughs> level. And I think you sometimes see that now that technically he's not up there with, with some of the players, but his attitude makes up for it often. But, mm -hmm. but I think he has had a tough time since coming back from the broken leg. Like if you search his name after games on social media, um, particularly if Everton aren't having it a good day, he's often getting a lot of it. Mm. And you saw that in his reaction when he scored, when he scored that goal. goal. Yeah, yeah, and he said that. You know, I think that was. I think he kind of talked about that. He was getting a bit of heat. Yeah. So, I think it's not just the physical recovery is a challenge. It's a psychological one as well. I would say that you know that he mightn't necessarily have the confidence he had before the leg break, and it might just. It might take him another till next season to get back to. Yeah, the, the idea of the injury, yeah. kind of playing on your mind. Yeah. You know, go, going in for a 50-50 ball or something like yeah, that. Yeah, could be. Yeah, could be. And just on, the, on that kind of determination that he always has, there was uh, like so many great little stories in this piece. There's one from um, David Myler, and he's talking about um, the days uh, talking about. I think it was an Ireland under nineteen game but or something. Sh like no, playing against Shane Duffy was it? Yeah, sorry, yeah. I think it was Sunderland and Everton yeah. playing an under-19s game. Saying Shane Duffy was playing centre-half. I didn't really know him at the time. I was trying to talk to Seamus during the game. He was completely ignoring me. The ball would go out of play and I'd be asking him, how are things, how are the family, how are you getting on? Yeah. Nothing. Big Duffy shouted over, will you ever just speak to him? Seamus said, no, I'll talk to him after the match. <laughs> but it's funny see, his how focus is amazing, isn't yeah, it? It's a huge focus. But it's funny how normal he is then straight after a game, because I, I was just thinking of this morning, I'd completely forgotten about it. Remember the Noel King when he managed Ireland against Germany yeah. uh, five years ago? Was that, I don't know, wherever it was, Cologne or whatever, but, but Killy Beggs were playing Glenn Swilly in the Donegal County final the following Sunday. I remember going down to the mix zone for quotes afterwards and like Kelly Beggs hadn't been in that final in quite a while and he came through the mix zone and he, he came over and said, oh, you're going to the county final on Sunday. Yeah. And this was just after playing World Cup <laughs> played Germany because this is what doesn't mind, like, you, which you is do, very yeah. unusual. So. Yeah, you, you do get the feeling that he's a guy who's just lived the dream, don't yeah, you? Yeah. yeah, there's another um, reference there to all the, the framed Irish players' jerseys he has in his place in Kelly yeah. Beggs. You know, you can just imagine he he's a he's a football a he's a football fan, fan that yes, has made it. Yeah, because he mentions bonding with Neville over being a United fan, and there are pictures. Mm. You, you know, there are pictures of knocking around of him wearing United jerseys in his teens, like while watching the Kelly Beggs GA team and stuff. Like he was a huge United fan, and he can he was very strongly linked with the move for them mm. to them before the broken leg, mm -hmm. which is a shame. Like I think Everton is a great club in so many ways. Like it's a club that suits his personality, but I'd love to have seen him challenged at a Champions League club and in the Champions League. Mm -hmm. you know.
Yeah, uh, there was uh, one thing uh, Mick, you mentioned when you came in here as well. Uh, yeah. Just a piece with uh, Paul Rowan and Ronan Curtis. Yeah, it's a nice little piece actually <coughs> by Paul. Just, um, it's just more it's like a little profile, I guess. With uh, he, he has spoken to Ronan, who's just scored his eighth goal for uh, Portsmouth and is, has had a brilliant first season. He's really hit the ground running. You, you, you suppose you compare it to like like Sean Maguire, who hit the ground running and then suffered a, seri a series of injuries, which has uh, held him back. But Curtis, he's already played 47 games this year um, between Derry and Port Derry City and Portsmouth. Um, it's interesting, we, again, after the Northern Ireland match, speaking to him in the mix zone, and he uh, he has he's kept the English accent. He, he he had they actually the family moved to to Donegal when he was eight, and he's the youngest of eleven. Uh, but he's that was the youngest yeah, of eleven. Eleven, yeah. Um, but he's managed to keep that accent, which uh, it, it's kind of touched on there. Uh, it, it, the school of hard knocks he had to come through, I suppose, in, in playing football as a kid up there with, with that accent. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, obviously very determined. Um, turned down a move to Sweden with Ostersons. Um, Potter, uh, Graham Potter now in charge of Swansea was in charge. He, Potter sold him the vision, but Curtis wasn't impressed with the financial deal. And even though they improved the offer, he decided to hang on and uh, wait to see what came in. And Portsmouth eventually came in. Um, he wanted to be closer to his to his little daughter, which is fair enough. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see. He, he's made huge progression. and. Uh, um, so he's spoken to Mick McCarthy already, who's kind of assured him he's going to be involved yeah, come March. He, he has made a lot of progress, and, he, and it's interesting he's spoken to Mick, but it kind of shows the way things have changed, because I remember when Brian Kerr was manager, and uh, Lee Trundle was, score, was playing really well for Swansea mm. and scoring regularly. And uh, at the time, Swansea were in League One, or I'm not sure if it was even called League One at the time, but I think since then on, on the Premier League program and today of M, I think uh, yeah, he did. Brian he has talked about, about this and he said basically I couldn't pick I couldn't pick somebody within the third division like mm -hmm. I had to look at him and but now it's happening we are having people because that's where that's where we are I know like his great Michael <coughs> Obafemi scored yesterday and he's the youngest Irish goal scorer in yeah. top line since 92 so he knows great hopefully he can kick on but you look now and you say uh, pick Ireland's to, uh, say we play, play two strikers against Gibraltar, pick the two. Now it's you don't know who to pick. Like mm -hmm. they're all there's pros and cons with every one of them. Like and mm. you're taking a punt on every one of them to be honest. So, uh, Femi, I from what I've seen in the last couple of months, I've, yeah. I've really liked. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's somebody I'd short, like to trust. He's, he's really, yeah. even though he's short, really physically really imposed. Yeah, and I have a and feeling, fast, I have a feeling Mick will start him because if you go back to, he wasn't afraid to start Robbie Keane at yeah. 18. Mm. So I think he'll, he'll have no qualms of doing it. And particularly the way the fixture list is with Gibraltar away and George at home as the first two. Uh, they're games you'd expect to win. So if you are going to use them in the campaign, those are the ones throw them in rather than have to throw them in. But it's, 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 it, but it, you know, at least there's a little chink of light there for us because Curtis is, what, 22, 23, 22, uh, Obafemi, 18. You know, these guys are coming through now, whereas a couple of years ago we were relying on 32-year-olds. You know, we had Sh Shane Long was kind of our, our youngest kind of striker and well, even, he was getting on, you know? Even six months to a year ago, we were kind of going, okay, there's Declan Rice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who else is yeah, there? but we what, still what don't what know about these guys, we have to say. No, no, you don't. We don't. Yeah. Like, but they're young. Yeah, there's, there's reason to be a bit more optimistic, yeah. but at the same time, we haven't scored a goal in four games. Like, we're coming from yeah. a very low base. To go back to Republic of Ireland of about a few months ago, 
and staying with Paul Rowan. Mm. Uh, he is writing also this weekend about Martin O'Neill and how he must, as he says, live down the dinosaur image in order to search for new employment. And well, Martin was in very there. much saying he's he's going out there. You know, he wants to get back yeah. into the game. He's, he's prepared to go to China, apparently. He gave a couple of interviews during the week to a couple of his his loyalists, <laughs> uh, shall we call them, on in the English press, uh, guys who've kind of. Uh, kind of uh, given him backing all the way through, uh, even in the last year uh, for the Ireland matches, which uh, was kind of a bit baffling, I think, for most people. Um, it seemed to be nobody, he wasn't to blame for anything and everything, everybody else was to blame. Mm -hmm. But um, I suppose the reward came in a, in a four hour chat he had with them. He sat down for a cup of tea and uh, basically said that he's ready to go again. Um, and uh, no surprise that Paul, Rowan kind of <laughs> gives the other gives the other argument there. Uh, he, he came up with a very good quote from Randy Lerner. Um, I think you find yeah. It some of the some yeah. of these lines in particular I found very interesting. Uh, yeah. Piece in the Wall Street Journal entitled "The NFL Owner Who Got Chewed Up by English Soccer." It chronicles Lerner's time at Aston Villa from 2006 to 16, for which Martin O'Neill was there for a large chunk of. Just some of the lines in it. Uh, it would be very easy to say the Premier League chewed me up and spat me out, but I'd like to think I put my finger down its throat uh, and said, now puke me up. Interesting. <laughs> About as graphic a, yeah. a, a picture of involves the Premier League as I could ever ever see. Uh, and also, you know, uh, O'Neill was manager. He splashed out £130 million, placing the club among the most extravagant in world soccer. And uh, also wants to say, Lerner eventually you know, cut off the tap when he noticed just the players coming into the club were late twenties on huge salaries, no, no resale value. Yeah, uh, British or Irish? Yeah, British or Irish in that? Yeah, very much in that kind of traditional football. Martin O'Neill, so Leicester, Leicester City. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because like I have a feeling he will get another job because I think um, I don't think the last year has damaged him in the, in the eyes of. Uh, those across the water. Well, he's always see, been very well connected. Yeah, and you even see that with English journalists. They still think he did an outstanding job with Ireland. They kind of ignore the decline in the last year. But I just, he always he has been well connected. That's certainly right. But and he did, you know, he was he was in the in the frame for the Everton and Stoke jobs, you know, just um, not that long ago. So, but the there is a big question mark over him because you, you, it's uh, you know has the game left him behind because. In his interviews that he gave the last couple of days to look at with the Daily Telegraph, and George Culkin and the Times, like he talks about basically saying stuff like pressing and stuff. And well, that stuff has always been there. You know, it's just called something different. Like I could call it blue collar football or something. But yeah, blue collar football. Yeah, this but, is the but, new label. Yeah, but you know, if it's always there, why wasn't it there with Ireland? Because you know, this is some John Walters has brought up. Like the kind of football that seems to suit Irish players is kind of aggressive, energetic, uh, in-your-face football. But Ireland was so passive for the last 18 months under O'Neill. Like, you know, it just seemed to be going through the motions. And all this stuff that he sticks to about not announcing the team till an hour before kickoff and all that, I think he has to, uh, if he wants to get back in, he has to change. And I wonder, is he too stubborn to change? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, to, to thrive again. Like, he might get a job, but if he wants to be respected the way he used to be respected he has to realize that the way he's done things before that might not i don't think it works anymore mm -hmm. was, yeah i mean he, he always struck me as stubborn all the way through his irish tenure um i can't see him changing now 
I don't think so. He is what he is, and um, there probably will be a club that will decide that's for them. Yeah, and even Rowan throws out a few possibilities. Sheffield Wednesday sacked their manager just the other night. Uh, the diehards would still welcome him back at Nottingham Forest as well if either Karanka fails to solve that puzzle. And also, uh, is there another one he mentions there? Um, no, there's just I, the yeah, two of them. I, it's interesting because, you know, if you go back to Forrest and, uh, you, you know, famously always speaks about the glory days of, of Forrest, you know, would he feel like perhaps there's a fear that he he could tarnish the the image mm -hmm. that he's that he's had there? That, I found status. interesting as well, actually, just in the paragraph above it, um, in expressing the readiness to work for a sleeping giant, O'Neill is ta uh, tac uh, tacitly admitted that he would be prepared to work at a lower level than the Premier League. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he would be prepared to do it. Yeah, there's no choice in the matter. Yeah. I would say, <laughs> no. you know, <laughs> to be honest. But you do look like like people like Mark Hughes who keep getting jobs. You know, there's a you mm -hmm. know who who've never done anything spectacular. Like there's guys that just uh, great seem, networkers. Yeah, they just seem to be part of the circuit. And I think Martin O'Neill might be part of that as well. That there are quite a lot of clubs out there when they're looking for somebody those are the kind of names they think of they good don't football think, men yeah that's a proper football yeah man. Proper, proper football, football man. man of course the other, the other question is does he go in somewhere with Roy yeah that, that well that's a, that's a very interesting one because Roy is just uh, an old man shouting at a cloud now so like where's he gonna go is he just like he always derided pundits but now that seems to be his future, but like he, that's he a, but he, yeah. he's scattergun in what he says as a pundit. Like he, you would never get anything out from him. Like how do you get the best out of Paul Pogba? It's just mm -hmm. about he talks about character and going and turning into tackles and attitude and spirit. The same old stuff all the time. And having to go at modern players. You just have to wonder as well. Will O'Neill take stock after what happened with Harry Arter, and kind of go, you know, was that the beginning of the end here? You know. Mm -hmm. Um, there probably wasn't. He should have went after the Denmark game last no, uh, two Novembers ago. Um, but you know, has he has he sat back now and kind of gone, "Whoa, that wasn't right. What happened there?" You know, and and am I opening myself for more controversy if I keep fight with Roy? Yeah, the, you know, the, most I, the most telling part of that piece is the headline: "O'Neill must live down dinosaur image and search for employment." And he has a dinosaur image now. Mm -hmm. You know that. The, you know, the, the, what's seen as the way forward now is like Bielsa leads, even though Bielsa is roughly, the, I would say he's roughly, might be the exact same age as O'Neill, but he's seen as a modern manager. O'Neill yes. isn't. O'Neill is seen as a 1990s manager. Um, to move on slightly from that over onto on to rugby, mm -hmm. uh, today's Sunday Independent, uh, oh, yes, all yeah. the Sunday Independent riders, they're talking about our moments that made 2018, so you have all their... All the usual riders, Neil Francis and Brendan Fanning talking about the rugby. Joe Brawley is talking about his favourite uh, Gaelic football moments of the year. Um, you know, Eamon Sweeney, the Irish hockey team, Dermot Gillies talking about Tiger Woods finding himself again and things like that. And just to one that I think all three of us actually found quite interesting was Neil Francis's one. Mm. Um, because as he is as he is one to do, it's He's making definitive statements here. Yeah. Whether you agree with them or not, it is one hell of a definitive mm. statement. But he's talking about Johnny Sexton's kick uh, to beat France in Paris. And I think the paragraph that really stands out and is the one that you kind of alert to straight away. Ireland's 42-phase series in Paris back in February, leading up to Jonathan Sexton's match-winning drop goal, was not only the greatest sporting moment in 2018 in, a, in Irish international team sport, but of all time on this island. And we all actually said, yeah. when we read this initially, we went, 
Ooh, don't yeah. know about that. It does, ja- it does jar with you a big and time, yeah. In fairness, whether or not you agree with it by the end, he, he, he elaborates on he elaborates on it well. Yeah. He, he it's makes a really his argument well written well. piece. It's so it's so because we've you know we've all read pieces about the drop goal, and I, and personally I hate these arguments over what is the best yeah, thing that's happened yeah. or the best sport or the best team and all these like I absolutely hate these. For me, it's all about what was your favorite or something like that. But well, um, well he, he makes a good point that you know it's it's kind of a definitive end. Mm-hmm. What happens? It's not like a goal. It's not like Ray Houghton's goal in Stuttgart. It was the 42 phases of yes. it yeah, to yeah. get to the goal. But also, but it was the final moment of the game and it mm-hmm. decided the game, yeah. I guess. It was the full, sp- yeah. the full stop. Yeah, no, no I, think it, I think it makes a brilliant case because when I read that uh, sentence, I thought, you know, this is like the people's game stuff again. <laughs> yeah. and I was yeah. saying All that everybody again. I yeah. meet says rugby is yeah. the greatest game well, in the world. See, in the I hate these the arguments. Ever. I hate these arguments. And when I read that paragraph, I went, oh yeah, my God, but, we're going to have to do this tonight. But he just goes through, he puts it into context. Uh, you know, of what a drop, basically the impact of other drop goals and other great moments in Irish sport. And then he just goes through the detail of how it, uh, how, what led up to Sexton making the final contact with the ball. Mm-hmm. And he makes a really strong case for yeah. it, I have to say. And it's, it's, it's interesting because, like, you guys would cover the Six Nations well. You know, when you go, when you're on six, the Six Nations beat, depending on the game, the same things are said. Often they run up. Like if you play in England, somebody has said, oh, well, it was tiddlywinks, we'd want to beat them. They throw mm, out the same yeah. line. Mm. But before the first game, people always say, you can't win the Six Nations in the first weekend, but you can yeah, lose it. it. Yeah. But this time around, Ireland did win it in the first. Mm. That moment won the Six Nations. It won the Grand Slam. Even though it was the first game, they never looked back. Mm. Like I set the tone. After that, they just... Straight down the middle. No, there was no looking back. Pin back the ears and the went. I do, I do think back kind of to that moment and kind of go, when you see not just how the Six Nations went after that, but summer tour to Australia, yeah. the That's November absolutely series beat the, the All Blacks. Absolutely, how, yeah. What would they have gone on to do this year? They, they could have gone on and won all the rest of those matches anyway, yeah, but yeah. It's, it's just interesting to think, like, well, you don't know, like how the, much would have yeah, changed on that yeah, kick of a ball. Like if he'd missed the kick, would that have... Uh, planted Leinster. a couple of doubts and it's would, back would in Leinster have gone on and yeah who knows double? because you know like he did talk before about the, the kick he missed that might have ended up beating the All Blacks yeah. a few years ago yeah. you know it did haunt him for a fair while well you know so yeah. well, the, the funny thing like about it's, that it's was it's a sliding doors moment yeah, and, and, and the other sliding doors moment was that France had a kick with three minutes to go yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that he, he might reference that actually it's a fairly yeah. simple kick yeah. as well actually yeah 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 Anthony Bello yeah he does mention it in the 77th minute I think yeah. Uh, uh, there, like there's a couple of paragraphs. There's one that stood out here as well. It's uh, just Brendan Fandom. To beat France, a formidable rugby nation of 70 million people in their own backyard when they had the game won is a very un-Irish thing to do. Our DNA normally tells us that there is comfort to be had in moral victories, mm. and that is one thing as well. Like you know, trailing those last yeah. couple of minutes, France had missed a kick. But I don't think I that, don't think that, that, that was your house. That would yeah. be, no, I don't think it would have been a moral victory because we were on top in that game, and then we let it slip. Teddy Thomas. Yeah, true. S- but even just right. even just the, the the notion of Ireland digging deep. Yes. To, oh, yes. To, had to, we, to had he missed? The, Sorry. To yes. snatch the victory yes. from the from the jaws of yeah, defeat yeah. To, to to win the game they shouldn't have won. The other thing about that, you know, you can go through the different things that happened in the move, the the, the cross kick to Earls, Ian Henderson taking the initial twenty two dropout when it was meant for Fergus McFadden, but um, the fact that that uh, Sexton went down with cramp mm. about ten seconds or twenty seconds before he actually took the kick. It's amazing. 
Yeah. It's amazing. Hey, th th like there's a couple of, like there's a bit there, he said, at this stage, it's probably important to mention Peter O'Mahony and CJ Stander, who both carried seven times. Yeah. This one, you're out of gas, is called courage. Yeah. I like that. I know people sometimes bristle when words like courage are used in sporting context and stuff, but like it does, to have the sheer, you know, the cojones to do that. Yeah. Seven times when the ball, you know, this is on the and line. And when I was, when I was reading that as well, I was, you I couldn't help but think of last night with Leinster as well, and but you have forty-two phases again. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, at three o'clock, um, James Downey is going to be coming in talking about rugby with us, and he would have played. He would have been playing for Northampton <coughs> when Ronan O'Gara scored that drop goal after forty-one phases at Thome yeah, Park yeah. in two thousand eleven. I'm very interested to hear. Uh, obviously, we're talking about from the the offensive side, Ireland having the ball, but just how mentally and physically draining it is yeah, to defend yeah. for those forty-one yeah. phases. And to make sure you can't give away the cheap penalty because course, it's yeah. it's a one-score game. Yeah, the and levels of concentration. A penalty means three points, and the match yeah. is over. Yeah, like that's what, like when you're utterly exhausted and have that those mm. le that level of concentration is just it's hard to fathom. No, because the Sunday Indo um, it wasn't one of their best editions because a lot of it is kind of review of the year and year. it's gone over. Not through any fault of theirs, but it's gone through a lot of stuff that's been going through a lot, that people have been going through a lot over the last few weeks because there's been so many reviews. But I mm -hmm. think that's that Neil Francis is the standout piece for And I like Brendan Fannings as well, who just gives a different slant on it, on yeah. more a journalist point of view. Like how often you hate those kind of moments when you're on deadline. <laughs> yeah. But this time it was you usually like a team basically. to be two or three nil up. Or yeah, yeah, like yeah. That, we, rather than the one one. We don't present. We don't pretend to present this re this job as real work. Which is not to say it doesn't have its moments of acute stress. Well, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I was there in the Stade de France that night, and um, I, I've slightly mixed feelings about it all because I, about <laughs> twenty minutes to go, I had to go back down to the press room. I wasn't getting the connection. Uh, again, right, you're writing against a deadline, and I just felt it would just be better to just to finish it in the press room. And all of a sudden, you're watching it on the screen. <laughs> so I was there. But I wasn't really there yeah, yeah, yeah. as he kicked it over. Yeah. So I, I, I always regret not being oh, in the stand is there, itself. As, as journalists, new, for newspapers in particular, is there one, one great Irish sporting moment that for you will forever be yeah. this horrific rewrite? Oh, rewrite. Oh, rewrite. Yeah. Oh. The one that everyone absolutely loves, but you will always just associate with, with, with utter pain and stress. Well, it's not an Irish one, but I, I covered the Champions League final in 2005. <laughs> so, <laughs> and because, because that was, um, because of the time difference, I think, I think it kicked off at Irish time, or uh, did it kick off an hour later than normal here or something? I can't remember, but it was very late in deadline anyway because mm. obviously the extra time penalties. But at halftime, when Liverpool were 3-0 down, you know, I thought this is at least, at least mm -hmm. a straightforward. Just sure, start sure, sure. So you had a lot of it written. Uh, you started writing then, just basically this shows how far behind Liverpool are and where they need to be, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> then when they get a goal back, you kind of revise. And then t when it goes 3 2, you're suddenly thinking, uh oh, this could take a big rewrite. And then 3 3, you have to do it. But after that, you're kind of going, where do you go with this? Because you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. Particularly, it goes uh, the extra time and the penalties. Like you, you don't know how to fix it. On like I've never read the piece back because I think I'd be afraid to. They're just all over the shop. Oh, From yeah. an Irish point yeah. of view, I'm not sure. Well, Probably well, the, the, the Henri handball or the Henri handball yeah. could have been. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of rewriting involved in that because it was a brilliant Ireland performance for a lot of it, and mm -hmm. then and then it just became all about the handball. So the whole stuff. Well, I, I would have story. thought that yeah, the like the the All Blacks snatching victory yeah, from yeah. 
from defeat mm -hmm. at that time. It was five years At ago. least that was early enough in the afternoon. Yeah, I suppose you that's put, true. You, you, know, you weren't hitting yeah. half nine, ten o'clock. Yeah, yeah, well, that's very it true. It had to yes. go in right on that second. That's very true. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the... One of the yeah. good things about being in radio. Just, sorry, just one of the... Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And the big well, box. One of the things um, about, about the, you know, was this the greatest ever moment, the one struck me, potentially, was uh, Seamus Darby's. Yeah, and Offaly. that was something he did actually mention as well. It was... Uh, it's in the Michael Foley Yeah, Michael documentary, Foley Documentary, if you want to go to that. But, but I, I, I thought in terms of a... That was a full stop in a way, mm. you know? It, and, and what it stopped... In, in itself, the, the five in a row, that was momentous, you know. Mm -hmm. But and it is hard to argue against that, that drop kick. It was just historic and dramatic. Yeah, and you did mention just before you came in as well, uh, Dennis Walsh is writing about it. It's a documentary happening this weekend, I believe, is it? Um, next Friday, yeah. Yeah, next Friday, was it Dennis called? Walsh, uh, yeah. players, players of the Faithful. Players of the Faithful. And I would obviously make Foley's involved in it as well. Yeah, uh, like let me, yeah, September, King Sub one of September. the great Irish books. Yeah, definitely one of the one of the top top four or five. I would think it's you know it tells an, an incredible story with really really good interviews with the, all all the people involved. Um, and this story, uh, because I, I I saw uh, trailers for this and I was wondering, I did wonder like why are they doing it now? And it's something Dennis mentions that normally these things are done around anniversaries, but yeah. you can see the timing because of Dublin. Like Dublin are trying to do yeah. what Kerry did, so it's perfect timing in a way. And uh, you know, there's good people like like Mick is what uh, Mick Foley is one of the talking heads on it, and so was Paul Rouse, who who is absolutely excellent, uh, and uh, who is always very insightful. Have and you it, seen it? No, I've just oh, right. no, just uh, I've seen clips of it and I've, um, uh, I've re read a few pieces about it. But but like Paul managed awfully briefly this summer, and you know he'd be he'd very much know the the county, and like even in terms of population, no county with a population as small as Offaly has won the football All Ireland since then. Mm -hmm. You know that's and they've also won hurling All Ireland. Like it's a remarkable county. You also forget. So um, sorry, the, the piece reminded me that they came so close in the years coming up to it. Like yeah, it was yeah. no fluke. Yeah. They were building and building and building. Yeah, they, they were building, but at the same time, like at seventy-five when O'Dwyer's Kerry won their first All Ireland, mm. they were in Division Four. Mm. Like the the two or three years before they came to it, they were building all the time. Yeah. And there's a few interesting lines in there. Like they kept playing the Kerry in challenge matches. And they were getting hammered all the time. And you know, eventually, I think he mentions yeah. somebody from the county board asked Eugene McGee, the manager, like, why are you doing this? He says, the more we play them, you know, eventually, you know, the more Something's we learn about stick, them, eventually yeah. we're going to learn more about how to be beat them. And they did. And it was like that moment, like there's a famous photograph of it when you just see the ball going into the net, like just over Charlie Nelligan, he's bending back. Like it's, it's a stunning photograph. And it's uh, his celebration just... Uh, Jumping like a lunatic is the, the one of the great celebrations. Yeah, the the start is very good. Um, in one of in one of the the sorry was it? Oh yeah, an interview excavated from the RT archives. In one of them, RT's GA correspondent Mick Dunn is standing in a field with Offaly's veteran keeper Martin Furlong. What about this great Kerry team? Says Dunn. Uh, Furlong pauses for a couple of seconds, looks away as if the answer he wants to give has been detained by the thought police and heavily interrogated. Then he looks at Dunn again and smiles. Well, he says quietly, they have to be beaten. Do you think they'll beat them, says Dunn, issuing the kind of follow-up question that would, have, uh, that would have a White House intern lunging for the microphone? Yes, says Mur Furlong evenly. 
thought was there, <laughs> they were confident. Yeah, and he he mentions uh, uh, or it's mentioned as well the how you can make comparisons between Dublin as well. That uh, there's uh, an old clip of a uh, Mick Dunn interviewing Eugene McGee, and Eugene McGee saying, "I suppose they're the nearest professional side that you can get in Gaelic football." Mm. They, the nearest we've ever come to professionalism. Whenever Kerry want money, they can get it. Oh and my I think God. We, I think you and McKenna wrote that about Dublin 20 times. <laughs> <laughs> You've written it a few times as well, I think. I, know, I love the dubs. <laughs> um, Every house should have them. There is uh, just we, below we that as well. That? Sorry, go on. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. You were no, just, just to touch on that, that uh, we were talking about this outside, that there's actually, Jim Gavin obviously got his contract extension. And um, very little on this, yeah. There's, there's yeah. two pages in the, in the mail. Yeah. Shane McGrath and Mike, Michael Clifford both speak about it, and uh, that's really it. Yeah, papers. because it's, it's odd because you know the, because the GA the, the change of the season the intercounty season finished up earlier than normal, so other than club stuff, no, there hasn't been a huge much a huge amount happening. But uh, the, this week there's actually been a few big stories. When you look at the Park of Cave finances, the, the financial problems in Galway. And even Jim Gavin agree in those the, those extra two years. I thought there'd be more in the Sundays. I'm quite surprised by that. I think mm. often I know this weekend and next weekend, any time people are knocked out of their normal routine, newspaper sales suffer a bit. And I think people sometimes are reluctant to throw good stuff away, throw the like they'll wait till January weeks, or whatever. Yeah. But I would have thought uh, there would have been a bit more. It's like good albums aren't usually released. Yeah. To Christmas. Yeah. That's that right? true. Yeah. That's true. Fair point. Yeah. And I still uh, say albums. <laughs> LPs. <laughs> 78s. Um, but yeah, just on that, like you mentioned, the, you know, there probably is a lack of GA stories out there. There was one, I suppose Michael Foley is writing about the Porky Creeve situation and just just a complete lack of clarity over the whole thing. There's yeah, some, yeah, there's yeah, nice yeah, colour in it, isn't there? But, yeah, because you know, he, he brings in the Galway stuff as well about... Um, you know, misuse of county board credit cards, including, you know, more than four, 45 grand expenses incurred by board officers, poor practice around gate receipts of various venues, failure to pay over 400,000 in All-Ireland final ticket revenue in the last month. And then the kind of murky, murkiness around the cost of park and the takeover, basically, of running the stadium of Crow Park by Crow, by Crow Park for a couple of years that, you know, the like there was a happy clappy statement issued by the GA last week that everything is great and Cork are happy and the GA are happy but I don't know how they can be no it's things always run over cost in Ireland with when it comes to building I don't know why but um well, well I, I you know it comes down I think to you know Billy Coleman from Ballinahasic caught the bouncing ball and went forward a few more yards is any of that in McKenna McKenna interview in the examiner true which is what it comes down to yeah really you know because there was an, an interview with Peter McKenna mm -hmm. from Croke Park saying and that there was an overrun finance, you know, was it 110 And it still just goes back around to billion? the GA, the siege mentality. Yeah, but, but do you know, in many ways the GA isn't fit for purpose because it's taken on a lot of the trappings of professionalism in that you have this professional staff in Croke Park you have, um, you know, the likes of Peter Enormous McKenna. Enormous amounts of money being yeah. involved. And yeah, there's a, yeah, because even now I saw the Donegal, I was reading a report the Donegal Convention a few weeks ago, and they've, they've a lot of, uh, they've, they've quite substantial debts, and for the first time ever they spent over a million euro on their inter-county teams. And trying to raise that money is very difficult. And, but basically what the problem is, you're dealing with professional levels of finance, but it's been run by amateurs. Like mm -hmm. you do have these, the likes of Peter McKenna who are full-time pros, but most of the people on county boards are, are still volunteers who came through clubs. 
they're not equipped to deal with this kind of thing. They really aren't. Mm. They don't have the expertise. And I think that's a, a, a massive challenge for the GA that down the road, do they have to employ, you know, the likes of, uh, you know, Tomas Quinn, uh, what's Tomas's title? Is a commercial manager in Dublin oh, or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that the, 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 you, you will need people like this with that kind of expertise because other people are getting in over their heads. Well, they you're going to see people with the best more and more. Yeah, yeah. More and more, you're going to see Croke Park having to intervene in all of yeah, these yeah. things. That's going to stretch them, mm -hmm. their staff. Um, we are running out of time. Is there any other little pieces you want to bring up? Can I just uh, mention the, yeah, the, the horse racing just yeah. briefly? I don't think either of us are uh, turf aficionados as such, <laughs> but it's a f uh, coming into the festive meat season and it's very Sean busy. Flanagan was one of your Yeah, members. yeah, just. Um, it's a very interesting piece by Dennis Walsh that uh, basically it's one of these um, kind of uh, from from nowhere to redemption kind of things where he uh, I think six years ago he had kind of he, he didn't renew his riding license and he was out in Australia he didn't really know where he was going um, eventually realized this is what I do and I, he was he wasn't getting he wasn't picking up enough uh, rides he wasn't picking up rides that could actually win win races and he was in a kind of an uh, eternal cycle of, of failure um, but he persevered and it's turned around now he's now with Noah Mead it's a really interesting story actually yeah that's uh, page 11 of the Sunday Times and there was one little yeah. bit Ruby Walsh talking to uh, yeah there's, he spoke to a few of the Sunday journalists I think um, to John Brennan and uh, in the Sunday world and also does it Philip Quinn has a lovely piece Philip about Quinn, it, that uh, was it yeah in the mail in the mail uh, where he kind of focuses on focusing in on, on on falling the science of falling and and Ruby explains that he 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 he's happy to be a jump jockey despite possibly getting injured once every 13 or 14 rides that's the average apparently um that on the flat they get they get uh, more severe injuries because you can't actually put your hand down when you're falling you fall so fast off the, the horse on the flat oh. that that uh, you fall you basically fall on your head mm. or on your neck or on your back and that's or your face you can't put. You don't have time yeah, to put your fall, hand down. Yeah, the, the fall. The fall. Haunted, as you're landing, it's a, yes. it's a slower fall. It's just interesting, you know. Yeah. I didn't know that. It's yeah. Yeah. There's, there's one other. Like, yeah, you pointed it out to me earlier, Neil. But uh, on the back of the Sunday Times, George Cruz. Oh and, yeah. And um, Dom Day, who played rugby at Saracens together, but they've set this up, company up selling CBD which is a derivative of hemp, which is a plant in the cannabis family. And last autumn, it was removed from the, the WADA list, the World Anti-Doping Agency list of banned substances. And you will see some British athletes are using it, but not many have spoken openly about it because it's, it's got misleading associations with marijuana. But it's a separate plant, but it, apparently it's very beneficial as a painkiller. Mm -hmm. It does an anti-inflammatory and it helps with sleep problems and anxiety. And it's quite interesting because of all the stuff about, you know, that's come up about random medicalization. Yeah, and as, as Dave says, yeah. CBD has helped us to get off prescription drugs, which yeah. we've been on for most of our careers, anti-inflammatories yeah. and painkillers. Yeah. And it mentions it, as well, I think, that, that it's taking off in the States. Um, yeah, there was one here. Um, in the United States, CBD is becoming well known in the sport. The former New York Jets NFL player Marvin Washington takes it daily and is on the board of the CBD company Isodial. He estimates the number of athletes using the substance in the US is now in triple figures across sports from American football to basketball and hockey. But um, it's a small little piece, just the Cruz and Day going into business together. They're launching, what is it? It's called 4-5 CBD. I'd, I guess that's in reference to two of them second rows, something like that. Maybe. Ah, yes. 
I'd be curious about the reasoning uh, for, for why WADA took it off the list and why mm -hmm. it was on the list originally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, uh, be, I'd just like to see that clarified. There's no mention of that. Yeah, very interesting piece, though. And, uh, and Donald sure. Trump has, has allowed for it to happen, I think, hasn't he? I think he signed off on the Farmers' Bill <laughs> or something. <laughs> it's part of the Farmers' Bill. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, industrial medicinal cannabis is probably okay. something we're going to be talking a lot more about in the next few years maybe yeah, but interesting to see how it goes but uh, that's about it for us on the paper review actually we've gone way over time uh, Kieran Cunningham of the Irish Daily Star and Michael Scully of the Irish Daily Mirror thanks for stopping by have a great Christmas same Happy to you Christmas. thank you Off the Ball find us on Twitter at Off the Ball News Talk 106 to 108